Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 is where we are in our study of God's Word together. It's good to be here with you. It's good to be among friends. But we come to the part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is no longer among friends. His friends have all left him. One of his closest friends betrayed him. And now he is surrounded by his enemies, those who have nothing in their heart but malice towards the Lord Jesus. It is a sobering thought to imagine what it would be like to be surrounded by enemies, people who just wanted you dead. Well, we're thankful that we are not in that position today, but don't think that that is not a blessed position to be in. For the Lord Jesus Christ himself said a few years earlier in his ministry, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't want to be surrounded by enemies. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to have false witnesses rising up against us to try to get us condemned in a court of law. But if that is the case, if God should ordain that for us, then we would be following in the footsteps of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, and we ourselves would be blessed. It's good for us to keep in mind that what is highly exalted among men is despised in the sight of God. And the reverse is also true. What is despised among men is highly exalted in the eyes of God. But we see that in Mark chapter 15 very clearly, that Jesus is the King of Israel, that this day of Palm Sunday we should be celebrating the acclamation that the Lord Jesus Christ received from his friends, from those who believed in him, from those who hoped in him, from those who had great expectation that he was going to sit upon the throne of his father David in their lifetime. And yet, that was not God's plan, and all of those who had such expectations for Jesus of Nazareth were sorely disappointed when they saw that he was, in fact, arrested that he was betrayed, that he was condemned, that he was flogged, that he was crucified, and that he was buried. That's where we are in Mark chapter 15 on this Palm Sunday. We're going to be looking at the King of Israel. Now, if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 15, you can take a look at verse 2 and see there the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we have a reference to Jesus as the King. And it's on the lips of Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. You look at verse 9. We have the second reference to Jesus as the king, where he answered them, saying, once again, Pilate, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The third time that Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews is in verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man whom you call the king of the Jews? And then verse 18, 
the Roman soldiers began to salute him as they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Finally, the fifth time in verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. But then, verse 32, on the lips of the Jews themselves, this time not Pilate, not the Romans, but the Jewish people surrounding the cross mocked him and said, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. The King of Israel, the King of the Jews, the first time that Jesus is referred to as such in the gospel, but six times here in the chapter, the King of the Jews or the King of Israel. So that's our theme for today. The upside-down glory, the mockery, the rejection, the hatred of the King of the Jews. And we'll take it in these four parts as we walk through. Go ahead and read the first five verses along in your Bible as I read it out loud. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Here we have the handing over of their king, the Jews handing over the king of Israel to the Roman governor, Pilate. The actual term that the Romans used for this position that Pilate held was prefect. Pilate was prefect of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, the fifth in a line of those serving in that position. Pilate was never promoted as those before him were. He ended up being in that position just long enough to get himself exiled and to end his political career. This was not a position that ended up being good for Pilate, but was actually his doom when he was appointed as the prefect of Judea. The prefect of Judea would govern underneath the legate of Syria, who usually resided in Caesarea, the prefect residing in Caesarea, and he would be there, Pilate would be there in Jerusalem for the major festivals of the Jewish people. As the population of Jerusalem swelled, there was opportunities for public outbreaks, riots, and so the governor, the prefect, would be there to make sure that order was kept during the festival days. Now, the consultation that we see early in the morning in verse 1 with the chief priest, together with the elders and the scribes, the whole council, that's the Jewish Sanhedrin, their central governing body, and they have this brief morning consultation to kind of put a, a rubber stamp of authenticity on their illegal night trial. They had actually held the trial of Jesus at night, which was against their law. But here they make themselves look a little bit better by holding this consultation at daybreak so they can at least say that they had condemned him during the daylight hours. But they wanted to get Jesus to Pilate right away because the Roman governors were known for wanting to get all of their business done by early afternoon. And then after that, they would have their leisure and so if you wanted to get business done with the Romans, you wanted to get there early. And so that's what they did. They had him there at daybreak. They bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now when Mark makes a point that they bind him there in verse 1, this is probably intended to make Jesus look like a violent criminal. 
Of course, Jesus is the furthest thing away from being a violent criminal. He did not resist his arrest, and he has not trained his followers in military maneuvers. He is a preacher of peace, but when you want to charge someone with sedition and insurrection, you have to put bindings on them to make them look like they are very violent and dangerous people. So that's, of course, what they do to make this case before Pilate look a little bit more credible. Also, anyone else who would have been observing the prisoner transfer as they took Jesus from one building in Jerusalem to where Pilate was headquartered, that would also sell the idea to the people. Here we have a dangerous criminal that we are handing over to the Roman authorities. Now, Pilate's question in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews, was prompted in light of the charges that they had given to Pilate. Now, Mark doesn't record that, but from the context, we are to assume that the Jews had made this charge against Jesus, that he is proclaiming himself to be a king. And in fact, that is what is recorded in the gospel according to Luke. Luke makes explicit what is implicit in Mark, where Luke says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, of course, Jesus had done none of those things. He had not publicly declared himself to be king. He had not forbidden taxes, tribute, to be paid to Caesar. In fact, when they tried to trap him with that question, he had openly and publicly said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So their initial accusation is full of lies, and that is what leads Pilate to ask the question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you trying to rebel against Roman authority? Are you trying to set yourself up as some kind of political leader in rivalry to Caesar? That's the question. That's the charge. And Jesus' answer, you have said so, is kind of difficult for us to understand because it is idiomatic. There are idioms in every language that don't often translate very well into other languages, and this is one of those cases. We have a number of idioms that might be similar, although they don't mean the same thing. They use similar words. Like if somebody says, you said it, not me, well, we know what that means in our idiom. If somebody says, you can say that again, well, we know what that means in our idiom. Well, this is the way it was in the Greek of that time, that to say, you have said so, as Jesus does, is to affirm the content of the statement, but not its context. Okay, so Jesus is affirming that he's a king, but that Pilate doesn't understand the context in which Jesus is a king. He says, I am, in a manner of speaking, but you don't really understand the way in which I am a king. That's the idiom that is being presented here. The Jews didn't understand who the Messiah was. They thought that he was this political deliverer, and that's why Jesus was hesitant to portray himself publicly as the Messiah. And, of course, the Romans would have even less understanding of what the Messiah is, was coming to do. And so Jesus does not deny the fact that he is the king of Israel, but he says, you just don't quite understand what I mean when I say I am the king of Israel. And so Pilate figures out pretty quickly that Jesus is not a political threat. Pilate's not an idiot. He has probably got many spies and informers, and Jesus is not a minor figure in Israel at this time. And so he probably already has some knowledge 
about who Jesus is and what Jesus has been up to. And so he's probably pretty skeptical about this claim from the beginning. And his time with Jesus makes him even more skeptical that Jesus is posing any kind of political threat to the Roman order. But when the chief priests continue to accuse him of many things, as you see in verse 3, Pilate wants Jesus to defend himself against the charges. Now, once again, Luke tells us a little bit more about the many things that the chief priests are accusing him of. In Luke 23, verse 5, we are told that the Jewish people were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place, creating public disturbances and fomenting rebellion against Rome. False accusations that are being made against Christ in this opening trial before Pilate reminds one, if you are familiar with the book of David, the book of Psalms, of exactly the type of things that David wrote about in his life and his experience. For example, Psalm 27 verse 12 says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And Psalm 35 verse 11 says, Malicious witnesses rise up, they ask me of things that I do not know. And so, this is typical of the person who is suffering legal jeopardy, being falsely accused of many things and having witnesses rise up and being asked about things that you don't know anything about as they try to entrap and ensnare you in the courts. Jesus knows what that's like and the psalmist wrote about it and now it's fulfilled in the life of the greater son of David. Jesus' silence in the face of these accusations is quite puzzling for Pilate. He's never had a person respond this way before. Normally, if someone is in court and they're accused of things that they're innocent of, they'll say, well, that's ridiculous. Let me tell you the true story about what's really going on here. But Jesus doesn't do that. He allows everyone to say everything that's false against him, and he doesn't say anything in response. And this unusual response is really troubling to Pilate because he'd never seen this happen before and we find out in the Gospel according to Matthew that Pilate's wife had actually had a dream that night about Jesus of Nazareth and that she had warned him to have nothing to do with that righteous man. And so Pilate, being a superstitious man, as the Romans were not atheists, but they were polytheists. And as polytheists, they believed in gods, and they believed in sons of gods, and they believed that sometimes gods could come down to earth and do things. That was all a part of their mythology and their belief system. And so Pilate may be thinking, I wonder if we don't have some kind of manifestation of Zeus or Apollo or, or some other god here, and he's walking around and doing these miracles. If I put him to death because the Jews don't like him and he's an innocent man, maybe the gods are testing me. Maybe the gods are wanting to see whether or not I'm going to do what I swore to do, that is justice, judging according to what's right, according to the law, rather than what is according to expedient, or what is expedient for me politically. So Pilate is nervous in this situation because he is caught between his superstition and his conscience and the political pressure that the Jews are putting on him. As I said, Pilate has not been a very successful governor in this region. He has not been promoted yet, as many of his predecessors had been. But in fact, he'd misjudged a number of situations and made a number of blunders that was not helping to keep the peace, which was his whole job. 
He was a stubborn man. He was a proud man. And, and the Jews were stubborn and they were proud. And, and when you get stubborn and proud people together, there's conflict. So he was hoping to avoid further conflict and he's hoping to avoid any kind of riot during this festival. And he sees here a, a potential problem. So among all of these different pressures, he is caught. This is the Jews handing over their king to the Romans. Now, the Romans aren't really interested in putting to death Jesus, but Pilate ends up being forced to do so in verses 6 through 15. Before I read verses 6 through 15, I had a verse here to consider, and that is in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where several months later, after the resurrection of Christ, the apostles are preaching in Jerusalem, and they tell the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you have delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So here we see the guilt of the Jewish people in the first half of our outline that they are the ones who are handing over their king to the Romans. They are the ones who have instigated this. They are the ones who have started this. And they are the ones who, when Pilate decides that he's innocent and tries to release him, that they put the political pressure on Pilate to crucify Jesus in verses 6 through 15. And this is why so many people have looked at these verses and thought, well, this is problematic because there's a history of anti-Semitism among Christians in the last 2,000 years, and that many Christians have persecuted the Jews for being Christ killers, for being responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And while the scripture is very clear that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, the scriptures are also clear that they are not the only ones who are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, but that God holds the Romans also accountable for the death of Christ. And that's what we'll see in points three and four on our outline, is that while the Jews are responsible for the first two, Mark is going to spread the blame out evenly among the Jews and the Gentiles as we continue through the passage. So it's not a matter of clearing the Jews of their guilt to be free from anti-Semitism, but it's a matter of recognizing that all are guilty and that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so that we are not anti-Semitic, we are just anti-sinner. And that is the sin that exists among all peoples in all times and all places. We are anti-sin. All right, so let's look at verses 6 through 15 then. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The feast that is referred to in verse 6 is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the Feast of Passover. These two festivals were back-to-back -back 
You had one day of Passover and then six days of unleavened bread after that for this feast of unleavened bread. Here we are at the very beginning of the feast of unleavened bread, the day of Passover being the previous day. And Pilate has this habit, this tradition of releasing for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now, at that point, Barabbas is mentioned as an important person in the story who's going to be coming up when Pilate offers to release for them a prisoner. Now, we don't know anything about the insurrection that Barabbas was a part of, but we are told that he committed murder in this insurrection. And so here we have a true rebel against the Roman authority, a man who is truly a violent and dangerous criminal, in the place of Jesus, who is anything but those things. And so the crowd that comes up in verse 8 is important. They figure largely in the account here in this paragraph. And the crowd, it's important to note, is a Jerusalem crowd. This is not the Galilean crowd that hailed Jesus on his day of triumphal entry. But this is a crowd of people who live in Jerusalem. And it appears also to be a crowd of people who have some sympathies for Barabbas. The insurrection may have been relatively recent because the Romans didn't tend to keep people in prison for a long time. Their trials were pretty speedy and their executions were pretty timely. And so this insurrection was probably relatively recent. And there were a number of people in Jerusalem who would have been sympathetic to the insurrection. And they may have already been hoping on this festival day, this Passover day, to get Barabbas released from prison. That's what one commentator had his theory, and I like that theory, that already in this crowd that was coming up to take advantage of this offer of clemency that was traditional, there was already in that group a group of Barabbas supporters. And that with the help of the chief priests, who were not Barabbas supporters, the chief priests were the go-between between the Romans and the people. They were kind of the peacemakers, and so they didn't like insurrectionists very much. But when you got some of the crowd who likes Barabbas, and then you got the chief priest joining in with them, then you start to get a consensus where you got different groups that normally wouldn't agree coming together to agree on something. And so with the instigation, with the consensus of the chief priests and having Barabbas supporters already there, well, Pilate has made a blunder. He has made a mistake. See, Pilate thought, I can use the goodwill of the people towards Jesus. He knew that Jesus was a popular figure, but he knew that the elites didn't like Jesus, that they saw Jesus as a threat to their position. That's what it means when it says they delivered him over because of envy. They didn't like the popularity of Jesus. And so Pilate thought, aha, I'll be smart here. I'll leverage the popularity of Jesus against the chief priest so that I can release him and get out of this conundrum. But what Pilate didn't count on was the fact that there was also popular support for Barabbas and that when the chief priest and that group of the popular support, they'd be able to raise their voices and move the crowd in the direction that they wanted instead of the direction that Pilate wanted. So there's this political maneuvering and political games that are going on here. Pilate plays his hand and he loses. The Jews play their hand better and they win in this case. And so Pilate, now having run out of options, he has to give in. He not only has the pressure from the Sanhedrin, but now he's got pressure from the crowd and that combined pressure 
makes it so that he wants to satisfy them and to give them their desire. So he does what is wrong. He condemns an innocent man. And he does what is fine. He pardons a guilty man. The right to clemency, the right to pardon, is an authority that Roman governors had. And so there's nothing wrong with the action of releasing Barabbas. But there is something wrong about scourging Jesus and delivering him over to be crucified. Now, a lot of critics of the Bible, they like to say, well, this account with Barabbas never happened. This is just a, a fun story that the church came up with in the first century because, they say, Barabbas is just such a ridiculous name. I mean, it's obvious that they, they didn't intend for us to take this account literally because Barabbas means son of a father. And who would name their child son of a father? I mean, that's a pretty stupid name, right? That seems like a stupid name to us. But once again, you see that the critiques of the Bible are based upon ignorance and based upon what seems true to us instead of an actual historical knowledge of the situation. For if you go back and you study the records of the Jewish people in this time period, you find out that Barabbas is actually a well-attested name among the Jews that people actually did call people Barabbas, son of a father, and probably in several different contexts. One context that they had in their culture similar to ours is that they would sometimes call the Jewish teachers, the rabbis, father. And so if your father was a rabbi, you might be called Barabbas, son of the father, like son of a priest, like we call priests fathers, which we shouldn't. Jesus told us not to, but we do. So it could be used in that context, but also it was just used in the context of son of a father as the exalted position of father in their culture. It was a name, and so we shouldn't reject something in Scripture just because it doesn't seem likely to us. You have to go back and do the actual historical work. And this is what's great about the critics. I love them for it. That they'll push on something in the Bible and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then you dig a little deeper into what they pushed on and you find out, well, it makes perfect sense. And just gives us more reason to believe the scripture. So thank you, critics. Now, Pilate does try to reason with the crowd. And you would think that this man would know enough about crowd dynamics that it's impossible to reason with the crowd. Once they start crying out, crucify him, and, and he asks, why, what evil has he done? Well, that's just going to have the opposite effect. The Jews don't like you anyway, Pilate. You try to reason with them. They're just going to do the opposite of what it is that you're saying. And crowds can't be reasoned with anyway. So you see some, some serious blunders here by Pilate. But the real sin here is not the blunders. The real sin is that when caught between his conscience and what is expedient for him politically, he chooses his political career. And he condemns an innocent man to death. It's no small thing to condemn a man to death. You're a man, you know. It would be no small thing for me to condemn you to death. That's a serious power to have. And to abuse that, to misuse that, for your own petty desires to maintain your position and authority and to be promoted, well, that is a great evil. And that is what Pilate was guilty of. You could put on Pilate's gravestone, he wished to satisfy the crowd. That path of satisfaction, that path of appeasement is the cowardly way to delay conflict. And we are not cowards. and We do not appease 
people. We do not appease the crowd. We do what is right. And we don't fear conflict. We stand up to conflict rather than delaying it or avoiding it as cowards. Cowardice leads to sin, as we see in Pilate's case. So while the Jews were guilty of handing over Jesus and denying him, as the scripture says, in the presence of Pilate and asking for a murderer to be granted to them instead of the prince of life, we find that there is plenty of blame to go around for the Romans as well, and that leads us into verses 16 through 20. The cruel mocking of the king of the Jews. Let's read that. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The Jews had mocked Christ at the end of the previous chapter. You turn back a page in chapter 14, verse 65. Some of them began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So the same way the guards and the Jews mocked and beat him, now the Romans are doing the same thing, spitting on him, mocking him, and beating him. This kind of abuse of power is unfortunately pretty common among people who are lower in authority in the government system. Unfortunately, a number of prison guards will have this attitude towards the prisoners that they watch over. They have to be subject to their superiors who aren't always kind and good. And so when they have a little bit of power over others, they use their power in a similar unkind and evil way. And we see that throughout history. We see it here with the Lord Jesus Christ that the soldiers, they make sport of the authority and the power that they have over those who are helpless, over those who are condemned. Now, why were these Roman soldiers so cruel to Jesus? It was probably not anything personal. They probably didn't know much about Jesus. They probably didn't know much about his movement or his teaching. We think that their motivation here was purely ethnic, that this cohort, as they are called, this battalion, auxiliary battalion that would travel with the prefect when he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They were largely from Gentile areas. The Gentiles who lived around Israel had no love for the Israelites as the Israelites had no love for them. So there's a lot of racial prejudice existing between these Gentile soldiers and the Jews. And so when a prisoner is handed over to them on the charge of being king of the Jews, well, this is their opportunity to show all of their hatred towards these Jewish people who hate them so much. And they vent that upon this innocent man that they know nothing about, except that he's been condemned. Such actions were probably beneath people like Pilate, but notice that Pilate doesn't stop it. He allows the men to have their sport. Now, I like the details that are here. And it's interesting how God has recorded for us the details about how they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. Can you imagine one of the soldiers thinking, oh, I've got a great idea. There's this thorn bush over here. I'm going to make a crown of thorns and we'll put that on him. Won't that be funny? How cruel people are and how clever in their cruelty. 
You see the most imagination and cleverness coming from people in their cruel moments. And then the reed that they beat him with, they would have put it in his hand as his scepter. And then they take the scepter out of his hand and they beat him on the face and on the head with that scepter. You beat a king with his own scepter, that's pretty insulting, that's pretty degrading. Jesus has been scourged. You might not be familiar with scourging because it's not something we do in our culture, but a scourge was something the Romans did to weaken a person before crucifixion so that they didn't live too long. And sometimes people would actually die just from the scourging alone. It was a weapon that was used called a flagellum. It had several strips of leather tied to a wooden stick that they would whip the back with. And on those strips of leather, they would attach pieces of metal and glass that would embed themselves in the skin when you whipped the flay across the back. They take off your shirt, they tie you to a post, and they bring the flagellum across your back and then pull the skin and the muscle apart as they rip the bone and metal and glass across your back. And there was no limit to the number of strikes that they could administer when they were scourging. The fact that Jesus is not able to carry his cross later shows that they were not light in his scourging, that they weakened him to such an extent that they had to conscript someone else to carry his crossbar on the way to Golgotha. Can you picture Jesus Christ, silent, taking it, exhausted, in pain, and yet not broken, strong in his spirit. And that probably would have goaded the men on even more. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his clothes back on, they led him out to crucify him. This is all according to the plan of God. This is all according to the prophecy of Christ himself. If you remember, when we were back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. He told his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. They, the Gentiles, will kill him. Yeah, the Jews have their part, they have their responsibility, they have their guilt. But the Gentiles have their guilt as well. And the Gentiles are there to represent us, the nations. And we can't look at the Jews and say, oh, those are the bad guys. If only it was that simple. If only there was a group of bad guys in the world that we could look at and say, if we just got rid of them, everything would be fine. But it's not that way. The line between good and evil runs through each and every single person. And all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And it's not a matter of getting rid of the evil that's out there or that's in them. It's a matter of dealing with the evil that is in you. And that's what Christ is here to do. That's what Christ is here to do. To overcome the evil that was in the heart of the Jews, that was in the heart of the Gentiles, and that's in the heart of all Americans today. This is the solution. This is the Savior. This is the hope. This is why he was crucified. 
So let's read. Final section this morning, verses 21 through 32. The Romans crucifying the king of Israel. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We start off with a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. We are told about his children, that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus, now, Mark's the only one to include this detail about Simon, the names of his children, and it's a rather remarkable inclusion. We have to ask the question, well, why does he point out that his children were named Alexander and Rufus? Well, we can't know for certain, but it would certainly seem like Alexander and Rufus were known to the Christians that Mark was writing this gospel for. And we believe, according to church tradition, that the gospel was written in Rome to the Roman church, and interestingly... When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome, he talked about a certain Rufus. He says, greet Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. So it seems likely to me that Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, was living in Rome and was a part of the church in Rome when Paul wrote later in that first century of the Christian church. It's little details like that that highlight the historical reliability of the Gospels that we have specific names of specific people who are known to those who are receiving the books that you can go and check, you can go and sort it out. Am I telling you the truth here? Here's a historical point of detail that can be corroborated. Now, we don't know for certain whether or not this is historical corroboration, but interestingly, in 1941, in the Kidron Valley, a ossuary which is a bone box, a Jewish method of burial that was really only in use during that period of the early church and the time of Christ. A bone box, an ossuary, was found belonging to a family of Cyrenian Jews. Now we're told that Simon was from Cyrene. And this bone box has the name on it, Alexander, son of Simon. I think it's quite likely that this is the bone box of Alexander, the Simon of Cyrene, that has been discovered. A lot of people have discounted it for various reasons. It doesn't get a lot of press, but just one of those archaeological finds that, again, I think provides a corroboration of the historicity of the text in front of us. Now, Simon is conscripted by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ. And conscription was a right that the Roman soldiers had. According to Roman law, a soldier had the legal right to force any person in the Roman Empire to carry a burden for them up to one mile. So you're passing by, the Romans got something that needs to go from point A to point B, the soldier can say, hey, 
I'm ordering you to carry this from here to there. And so Simon of Cyrene happens to be the man who is conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, when Mark describes the crucifixion of Jesus, he does not focus on the gruesome spectacle of the cross. He doesn't focus on the physical pain. But instead, Mark focuses on the public derision, the mockery that Jesus Christ received at his crucifixion. None of us have ever been to a public execution. It is pretty gruesome. And I imagine that movies like The Passion of the Christ are pretty accurate about what it would have looked like, what it would have felt like. First century people knew. Mark didn't have to write what crucifixion was like because it was a pretty common form of execution and most of his audience had probably seen a crucifixion. Still, I'm going to focus not on the physical pain and suffering of the cross, but I'm going to focus on what Mark focuses on, and that is the derision, the mockery, the hatred of the people around the cross. That's what the Holy Spirit has focused our attention on in the text. Interesting detail, once again, that all four gospel writers include that Jesus Christ is crucified in the middle of two other criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Very specific. The Holy Spirit wants us to picture three crosses on the hill with Christ in the middle between two robbers, as they are called, or insurrectionists, as would also be a good translation. One thing I want to point out here is that verse 28 is missing in your ESV translation. This is something that you will come across from time to time where a textual issue is there so that when the Bible was originally put into verses, they were using a text type that was a later text type and that there was a certain number of insertions in the biblical text that we have been able to detect as our knowledge of the textual history of the Bible has increased in recent centuries, so that most modern translations of the Bible recognize that verse 28, as it is found in the King James Version, was not an original part of the Gospel of Mark, but was in fact inserted from Luke chapter 22, verse 37. And so this will happen sometimes. A scribe will be thinking of a different Gospel, and while he's making a copy, he'll insert a verse from another Gospel because it's just part of how he remembers the text. And so... I think they're correct in not having verse 28, which says, the scripture was fulfilled, he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, that's a true statement. It's in the Gospel of Luke, and the Holy Spirit does want us to think about that. Everything that Mark here is a fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. But Mark leaves it up to us to figure that out. He doesn't make it as obvious as Luke and John and other Gospel writers. Instead, he just records what happens, and he expects you to be able to pick up on the imagery from the Old Testament, from the Psalms and from Isaiah 53. Now, let's bring this to our conclusion. You see there in the final verses the mockery of those who were his enemies at the cross. Those who passed by in verse 29 derided him, wagging their heads, which is a traditional Jewish way of mocking, saying, Aha! you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Here the people are being the mouthpiece of Satan, tempting Jesus one last time to disobey God's will 
and to spare himself and to not be the sacrifice for our sins. And the chief priests and the scribes also mocking, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now like what one guy said about this, he said, they could only conceive of a power that would act in self-interest. They could only conceive of a power that would act in self-interest. And if Jesus didn't act in self-interest, then he didn't have power. How many people are in the world like that today? All they know of power is self-interest. And there's no concept of love. There's no concept of self-sacrifice. Of a God who has a good will, who has power to do whatever he wants to do, but whose love constrains him to not save himself, but to give himself for others. You know, so often what people think disproves the claims of Christ are actually the proof of his divinity. They think that the fact that Jesus Christ is being crucified and appears to be helpless on the cross is proof that he is not the Son of God. When in fact it is the very proof that he is the Son of God. Donald English wrote about this passage. He says, What they taunt him for not doing, saving himself, is precisely so because he is doing what they ridicule, saving others. He couldn't do both. He could save himself or he could save others. He chose to save others. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is the explanation for the cross in the Gospel of Mark. Surprisingly, there's no explanation of substitutionary atonement in Mark chapter 15. But back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus told us, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he also said in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here Jesus loses his life for the sake of the gospel, and he has saved humanity 